Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. are you today i'm fine how are you i'm great i'm ready for this banana bread Ooh, yeah well we just took out a, a loaf of banana bread out of the oven right before we started recording so yeah. it will be cooling and then when we're done you best believe best i'm gonna believe cut myself a piece mm-hmm. but um we've had kind of a weird week you want to we've had another weird week do you want to tell uh our, our our friends what 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 happened? So <laughs> how I can't speak. I yeah, I know like, it's just flabbergasting. Truly, it was very strange. So just a little bit of background: we got this three-page letter in our mailbox. Um, yeah, it basically says urgent, like safety safety precaution. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And it's from some random person that we have never met. We do not know who he is, and he sent us this letter, basically saying like. Your apartment building has lost or had stolen the master keys to your apartment. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so strange. And, like, I don't I don't know whether to believe this person or our... Management. Management or neither. Yeah. Um, I think I've landed on neither. Yeah. But... Anyway. The letter is really funny because he's basically ripping our like the the people who own our building like a new asshole like yeah. he he did it in such a like underhanded like yeah shady way so so i have i think it would be funny to read an excerpt from this letter just like a to illustrate um how hard he comes for this company because the first page is basically explaining the situation and then he gets into trash talking <laughs> people that he's worked with you can tell it's very personal yes so after explaining the current situation (laughs) he goes on to give me two names for uh two douchebag guys um chuck and doug chuck and doug perfect (laughs) just so we don't reveal their real names he goes on this old bald-headed and weed-smoking, quote, professional, has as much decency as he has backbone. Colon, none. Chuck is weak. He gets bullied and abused by his own buddy, the demented Doug. Doug is a cancer who isn't good at his job and has been treating people horribly for years, but Chuck is scared of him, so he just bends over for Doug. This, okay, and this this letter goes on for three whole pages. Just doing the most it is it was entertaining but also very concerning yeah i know because we were like well this is clearly unprofessional but at the same time our ma- somebody might have our master key yeah because so, the guy was basically like somebody has stolen the master key to your building the key says what building it's for it says that it's a master key so yeah. like whoever has it can enter your apartment at any time which was very scary to think about so we slept with the couch in front of the door for a night, which was a little weird, but it was fine. And uh, then we changed a lock to one that we only have the key to. So we feel fine now, but it was just very strange. Yeah. So, and then he came with receipts, like he printed out emails. Yes. And then gave his personal phone number. Yeah. So it's it was a definitely a weird thing to get in the mail, but... 
anyway, I just, we wanted to share that, like, little excerpt with you because... I thought it would be fun. It, it was clearly a very personal yeah. attack. I mean, some of the some of the lines from this letter are, like, <laughs> crazy. Ruthless. It's like, he also goes on to say that they will badmouth him, which is boring and predictable. Yeah. <laughs> so, just a lot of tea happening in... in one week yeah we were not expecting this but it was quite the surprise yeah but anyway do you want to get into talking about this week's story let's do it okay so we are going to be talking about kind of a true crime legend if you will his name is mike malloy Mm -hmm. do you know anything about mike malloy i know that he's durable he is one durable guy. Durable boy. Yeah, he has quite a few nicknames, and uh, I'll mention those a little bit later, but let's just jump in. Uh, but to answer your question, actually, I don't know anything about this case other than what you've told me as, like, the headline. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then let's talk about it. So, Michael Malloy was born sometime in 1873. Not really sure exactly the time he was, but he came from the Irish county of Donegal. However, he ended up in New York City sometime around the 1910s, as this was one of the peak periods of Irish immigration to America. At the beginning of Mike's time in the U.S., he did a lot of odd jobs, like being a janitor, a street sweeper, or at one point he even became a firefighter. There isn't a ton of specifics known about Mike's life since he didn't really have any family or friends in his life, but something that is pretty much agreed upon is that Mike was a drunk. So the reason he worked so many of these odd jobs was because he couldn't hold down a single job due to his addiction. Mikey Malloy would smuggle booze with him to work, and sometimes he would get so drunk that he wasn't able to continue working. And he which really wasn't helping out that really terrible Irish stereotype at the time, but here he is. Well, you know. Yeah. Mike's life got even harder when the Great Depression hit in 1929. And do you know what was going on? Do you know what was going on in New York around that time as well? I, I don't know. Prohibition. Another serial killer? Prohibition. Oh, Prohibition. <laughs> oh, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so we have the Great Depression and we have Prohibition. Oh, what a fucking terrible time. Like, you don't have a job and you can't drink. Damn, that sounds like a Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, you're like, wow, that sounds terrible. When did they, um, when did they lift Prohibition? I'm uh, curious. I don't have an exact date. Probably it was like sometime <laughs> around 1930. They're like... People can't deal anymore. No, yeah, it was sometime around like 30, 1933 or 34. Oh, really? Yeah, it was sometime around there. Um, I could be wrong, though. So if someone knows, let Us me know. Us fully having Google. Yeah, give it a kook. Why not? 1933. It was December 5th, 1933. I was correct. We love when that happens. Yeah. So if we learned one lesson, don't take away America's booze. Yeah, or something. So... Like the other 25% of working people during that time, Mike lost his job and also became homeless, which meant that he was on the street and constantly desperate for a drink. By 1932, Prohibition had been going on for 12 years, and following the ban, criminal gangs gained control of the beer and liquor supply in many cities. There were tens of thousands of speakeasies all over New York City, and most of which were controlled by these shady characters. 
if you were in an upper class speakeasy in Harlem, you'd get some nicer liquor. But if you were in a hole in the wall type speakeasy in the Bronx, you were going to get rock gut whiskey, bathtub gin, and neither of those things were really fit for human consumption. It might kill you, but you would be drunk first. What made this cheap liquor so dangerous was the use of industrial methanol in the mixture. Methanol was used in things like paint thinner and antifreeze and other industrial products, but it was cheap and easy to come by, so a lot of drinks in these shadier establishments were laced with it. And this type of alcohol was known as wood alcohol and was extremely toxic. But that didn't stop Mike. His tactic was usually to stumble into whatever illegal speakeasy he could find and then start buying drinks on a tab, knowing full well he couldn't pay for it. When the bartender would realize that Malloy had no intention of paying back his tab, he would immediately be thrown out. But what were they going to do? Call the cops? Right. No, they weren't, because they're already an illegal speakeasy. Right. I guess this is kind of a genius for the short term. Yes, but considering the types of people who were yeah, owning they're these come to collect. Yeah, it was a very risky strategy. Well, he didn't care. No, he didn't. One day, this tactic led Malloy straight into a speakeasy that was hidden behind an empty storefront at 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx. Oh, you're just going to dox them? It's no longer there. <laughs> that building is gone. But at the time, it was at 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx. It was not a classy establishment by any means and was kind of a shithole. It had four tables, a 12-foot bar against one wall, and a threadbare sofa against the other. And then there was a bathroom separated from the main room by a beaded curtain. This speakeasy was owned by 27-year-old Tony Marino. He was definitely serving the cheapest of the liquor, but he tried to make the place a little nicer by offering a free lunch tray that sat at the end of the bar, usually consisting of oysters, sardines, and lunch meat. They're just serving fish and meat. (laughs) Yes, which sounds really nasty in my opinion. I don't know that I would trust old room temperature lunch meat, but I guess at the time... Some people didn't have the luxury of caring. Yeah, I mean, if you're sipping on methanol, you probably don't care about some old lunch meat. That's true. Malloy would come into Tony Marino's speakeasy so often and run up such a tab that Marino gave him a job at the bar. Really? (laughs) Yeah, that way he would at least work for a very small wage and he could pay for at least some of his drinks. When the business was good, Malloy would work doing things like organizing bottles or cleaning the bar. But because Malloy was in there so often, Marino started to get a sense for who he really was. Mike Malloy was a loner, and Marino wasn't sure where he would go home to every night, but it was very clear that all he cared about was alcohol. And what started to happen was Malloy started to drink more and more and work less and less. At that time, the depression had been getting worse, and Marino's business had already been suffering. So because of that, Marino had to cut off Mike Malloy completely. But that didn't stop Mike Malloy from coming in every single day and getting whatever alcohol he could get his hands on. See, I wonder if he... I don't, I'm sorry if I'm preempting the story, but I wonder if he starts to threaten to like turn him in to get alcohol. I don't have that in my notes. I mean, it's very possible, but also I don't think that 
that Mike Malloy would want to shut down a speakeasy where he could get alcohol fairly easily. True, but like, I think he might threaten it. Very possible. Something about Tony Marino, he wasn't a part of the mob. However, when things got bad, he and a few of his friends who were also struggling to make ends meet would get together at his bar and come up with various financial scams to make some quick money on the side. Love it. Yeah. This group of men was speakeasy owner Tony Marino, Joseph Red Murphy, who was formerly a chemist but now worked at Marino's speakeasy as a bartender, Francis Pasqua, who was a funeral parlor owner or undertaker, and finally, Daniel Kreisberg, who was a grocery store owner and a father of three. So these men are all getting together and they're pretty much just trying to figure out how they can make a quick buck. One of the scams they had recently turned to was insurance fraud. More specifically, life insurance fraud. Oh. Around this time, Tony Marino was dating a woman named Mabel Carlson, who was a hairdresser from Washington, D.C., but had recently fallen on hard times and found herself homeless in New York, with Marino taking her in. Somehow, Marino had managed to convince Mabel to sign off on a life insurance policy that would pay out $2,000 to Marino as the sole beneficiary, which in today's money would have been around $43,000. Ain't bad. Yeah, but like, don't kill people? <laughs> like, I mean... Uh, one... <laughs> you're like, what do you mean? You're like, I mean... For 43 k I don't know. You're like, by the way, I've been meaning to talk to you about signing a life insurance policy. Would you like? <laughs> Prudential's got some options. They the Prudential Life. Prudential really? is in this, yes. No way. Yes. Obviously, I'm joking. Yes, we know. So one evening, Mabel drank so much that she collapsed unconscious in Marino's bar. So Marino and the rest of the gang members proceeded to carry Mabel into their room where they stripped off her clothing, laid her on the bed, doused the sheets and mattress with ice water, and pushed the bed beneath an open window to let the freezing winter air in. So not long after that, Mabel was found dead. Meaning Marino was able to claim the $2,000 without incident as the result of her quote-unquote accidental death. Oh, that's fucked up. It's very fucked up. Jesus Christ. I thought when, when you initially said insurance fraud, I was like, oh car insurance yeah they're gonna burn a building down uh, i don't know no, no no yeah home insurance yeah no they're gonna kill people so mabel was their first victim and they're not strangers to doing crazy shit like this to make a quick buck but this was a temporary fix for them because that amount of money split between the group didn't set them up for life but rather just for a few months so they kind of had to keep doing it to continue to make money. Actually, Marino had just been one of many people who were turning to murder to make money at the time. There were many high-profile life insurance fraud cases going on in New York during the late 1920s, because times were tough for everyone, and I guess they were able to kind of get away with it. Like, like everyone was doing this? Well, not everyone. I mean, not, not every, but it was prevalent. Yeah, it was happening. Wow. They weren't the only people that figured this one out. On one evening in July of 1932, after the money had run out from Mabel's policy, Marino sat down at the bar with Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, and Joe Murphy. 
And while the men were talking about how things were going, Marino told them that the business was back to being really bad. There was a lot of local competition, and his place was known around the community as being kind of a rough place, so the type of customers he'd attract would come in and run up drink tabs that they either couldn't pay back or they would just refuse to pay back. So because of that, his business was going under. These men were extremely desperate to get some quick money because if the business went completely under, they would lose the speakeasy and they themselves would become homeless. As the men brainstormed what their next scheme would be, Francis Pasqua just so happened to glance over at Mike Malloy, who was slumped over the bar. So he proposed that Tony Marino take out a life insurance policy on Mike Malloy. That way they could take care of him and then collect the money. This seemed like a brilliant idea because in theory, Mike Malloy's death should have been much easier to pull off than even Mabel's. He was about 60 years old at the time, was apparently in terrible shape, was a severe alcoholic, and had no friends or family to answer to. So they thought this was going to be a quick and easy win for them. But boy, oh boy, win. were they wrong. Well, you know, win, not <laughs> Just to a me. Quick, it's a quick murder. Yeah, I mean, not a win murder to me, money. but to them. This would be a win for them. So this plan started with Francis Pasqua recommending to Michael Malloy that he buy some life insurance, and he offered to help him. How kind. So the men met at the local life insurance office, which was Prudential. Inside, Francis Pasqua and Mike Malloy met with a life insurance agent where Pasqua says, this is Mike Malloy, he's my good friend, and we want to take out a life insurance policy on him with a double indemnity clause in case anything happens to him, and I will be the beneficiary. Not suspicious at all. And he's hammered too. <laughs> I don't know, in. probably. And for whatever reason, this agent was like, yeah, that sounds great and wrote out a policy for $2,000. A few days after going to the Prudential office, the men met up again at the Metropolitan Insurance Company and asked for another insurance policy, this time worth $3,000. So $5,000 in 1930 is equivalent to around $88,600 in 2022. So Francis Pasqua and the other men in on this scam thought that they were set. But these requests for life insurance policies needed to be reviewed by upper management. And of course, they raised a few red flags. Because why would someone unrelated to Mike Malloy want to take out an insurance policy on him? So both policies were ultimately rejected. Good. But that did not stop these men. Without telling Malloy, the group created a fake identity for him named Nicholas Mellory. The idea there was that after Malloy's death, they could just plant this fake ID on him. Even though Malloy was around 60 at the time, the men made his fake age 45 since that was the youngest they could possibly get away with and they could get the most money from him being younger. And Joe Murphy was enlisted to play the part of Nicholas Mellory's brother. That way he could be the beneficiary. So Francis Pasqua and Joe Murphy then went back to the same Metropolitan Insurance Company and this time secured an $800 policy. The agent who was helping them with the policy later said, although quote-unquote Nicholas Mellory wasn't present at the time the men were opening the policy, he just took their word for it and sold them the insurance since he needed the commission. Wow. 
So this was something that was happening where was people were taking out life insurance policies to commit kind of, you know, fraud. And these agents were also desperate for money. So they just sold them. And that's how people were kind of getting away with things like this. That's just, just an ugly incentive system. Yeah. The men then went back to the Prudential Life Insurance Office and took out two more insurance policies that said in the event of the accidental death of Nicholas Mellory, a.k.a. Michael Malloy, the men stood to collect more than $3,500, which was around $67,000 in today's money. In these cases, it was either that the insurance agents were bribed or they were just so desperate for commission that they didn't care. With all the paperwork out of the way, the last thing the gang needed was Malloy's signature. So after a few rounds of drinks, they handed him a sheet of paper telling him that it was a petition to help Marino run for public office. (laughs) Yeah, like why? So some sources even claimed that Marino didn't even bother to hide what the form actually was since he knew that Malloy would be too drunk to read it. So he literally just handed him the life insurance paperwork with his name on it, or actually Nicholas Mellory's name on it, and was like, sign this for me. It's nothing sketchy at all. And Malloy just signed it. He was like, yep, sounds great. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't he? Yeah, he just didn't even look at it. So now their plan moved into phase two, the actual murder of Michael Malloy. The men honestly believed that it was only a matter of time before Malloy died by his own hand due to alcoholism. So Marino stalked the bar and told Malloy his bar tab had been completely forgiven. And not only that, but he had an unlimited tab. So he could drink however much he wanted all day long. And they're like, he'll drink himself dead. He's going to kill himself. And Michael Malloy, who was basically a kid in an unlimited candy shop, took full advantage of this new setup. After the first night, the men sat and watched, expecting Malloy to collapse drunk, but nothing happened, and even after drinking all night long, Malloy left the bar on steadier legs than he came in on. Oh my god. (laughs) The next morning, Mike came back in to start all over again. Each time Mike would have a drink, he would cheers to his friends for their charitable good nature and then tip it back. This nonstop drinking went on for almost a week until Mike had nearly gone through the entire bar's worth of liquor. Oh my god. (laughs) If he kept up at this pace, he was going to put Marino out of business before anything actually happened to him. So that's when bartender Joe Murphy came up with the idea to give him wood alcohol. The gang thought that this was a great idea, so Murphy went out to the local paint shop and he bought hundreds of cans of wood alcohol for 10 cents a can. The next morning, Michael Malloy came in ready for his full day of drinking. But the gang was sneaky about it at first because they gave him a few shots of normal whiskey and gin and then gradually started adding more and more wood alcohol into the shots. So they're very slowly starting to pour little bits of this straight-up poison into shots of liquor. Which, again, is incredibly lethal. Consuming just a 4% proof sample of wood alcohol is enough to make a person go completely blind. Oh, wow. 
Because of the Great Depression, many alcoholics were turning to wood alcohol as a cheaper alternative, but in Manhattan in 1929, as many as 11 people were dying per day from the stuff. Wow. Yeah. So it was killing a lot of people. So they're like, it'll be super easy. We'll just give him methanol and he's going to die because everyone else is. But as Mike was drinking shot after shot of this literal poison, it almost had no effect on him at all. He seemed completely fine. Oh my God. So this is, it's just his baseline is so highly polluted that this doesn't do anything? Yes. Oh God. He's like a drum of toxic waste. Like he does not, it's not affecting him at all. This is insane. Yeah. And soon they stopped adding in any other alcohol to kind of mask the taste. And they started just giving him straight ethanol right out of the can into the shot glass and down the gullet. At one point, Malloy literally raised his glass to cheers and said, this is the best alcohol he's ever had. (laughs) He said he said he liked how smooth it was. Wow. He's drinking poison. I'm just shocked. Like, (laughs) he likes it more. Yeah. He's like, this is the best. Of course, because, I mean, it's not killing him, but it is making him very drunk. So he's like, this is fantastic. I haven't been drunk like this in years. Like, Mm. it's it was that bad. So the gang started challenging him to drinking competitions and would get him to drink as much of the wood alcohol as possible. But still, night after night, he came back for more. One night, however, he came back and actually started to get really drunk from this wood alcohol. He was slurring his words, and his legs became wobbly, and he started swaying over the bar until finally he took one more drink and fell to the floor. The gang was like, okay, finally. The poison should be coursing through his body at this point, so it was only a matter of time before he croaked. So they sit there watching him, because obviously no one was going to get up to help him, and they see that his breathing seemed labored, and after a few minutes, they see that his breathing returned to normal, and they start to hear a very faint snore. No way. So they realize that Malloy is literally just sleeping it off on the floor in the middle of the bar. Oh my god. And they kind of just sit there and stare at him in complete shock. Because what the hell? It's been like a week or over a week of drinking straight wood alcohol and he's just sleeping. Wonder of nature yes. or something. He's uh, he's built different. Yeah. He literally has ice in the veins because think about it. And well, I guess maybe antifreeze. He doesn't have ice in the veins. He has anti ice in the veins. He has anti ice in the veins. And what's funny is that he wasn't even out that long. Like he wasn't even asleep for that long. Less than an hour later, he woke back up and thanked his buddies for a great night before walking out. Wow. I guess this is really sad too because he thinks that they're his friends. Yeah, there's definitely like a sad undertone to the story. I mean, these guys yeah. are like attempting to murder him. Like they're, yeah. they're poisoning him and doing anything they can to kill him. So it's definitely dark, but it's just unbelievable. I can't believe how much he can put his body through and then just take an hour nap and walk away. Yeah. I mean, it makes and you, this is not the end of the story. No God. No, we're not, we're not there yet. Um, it, and it makes you wonder, like, did he know that they were giving him like poison? Did he not care? Like, was he that desperate for a drink? 
Or did he truly just believe that he had an unlimited tab with no strings attached? Like, you, there, there's no answer to that question, but it's just like, what? How did he not know? Maybe he didn't care. Right, exactly. That's very possible. So after he woke up and walked out and thanked his friends for a lovely evening, Tony Marino, Francis Pasqua, Joe Murphy, and Daniel Kreisberg got together again and started talking about some more drastic measures they could take. Francis Pasqua, who was a funeral director, remembered that he had once buried a man who had died while eating oysters and drinking wood alcohol. So Pasqua, seeing the tray of food at the end of the bar, full of oysters and sardines and lunch meat, comes up with the idea of soaking some of the oysters in wood alcohol and then feeding those to Malloy. And again, they're all like, yeah, sounds great. So they soak these oysters in wood alcohol for a few days to make sure that they're really full of the stuff. Malloy, of course, comes in night after night, and at this point, they had given him so much wood alcohol that the place straight up smelled like chemicals. Other customers in the bar at that time had said that the place smelled like an industrial chemical plant. Like, it did not smell like a bar. Wow. Yeah. But finally, Malloy is sitting at the bar and Marino says, Hey, Mikey, you want some oysters with your drink? And of course, Mike Malloy would never turn down anything free, so he accepted and ate every single one. All while downing shots of wood alcohol. But again, the next morning, Mike Malloy is back in the bar asking for more wood alcohol and more oysters. <laughs> And th- continually dumbfounded. Yeah, they're, I mean, think about the money they're putting into Mike at this point. Like, they're yeah. investing a lot of money. to. They think they're going to get the money back, but, like, they're putting money into this. Yeah, I know. But also, why would oysters kill him? Like, he's been taking straight wood alcohol for a whole week plus, right? Right. Why would this do anything else? Well, I guess Francis Pasqua had, like, buried someone who specifically had eaten oysters and drank wood alcohol. If I had to guess, it, this person probably just died from the wood alcohol because it's poison and they're a right. normal person, probably. But Mike Malloy was built different. So yeah. the oysters are not going to really add anything. anything. Yeah. yeah. But to Mike, they're literally just giving him free alcohol and now free food. So why would he go anywhere else? Exactly. And that's when the men realized that Mike Malloy would often make himself sandwiches at the bar, putting a few sardines between pieces of bread. So Marino grabbed a tin of rotting sardines and prepared a sandwich for him with rotting sardines, shredded tin, carpet tacks, crushed glass, and a sprinkling of rat poison for good measure. Oh my god. And this sounds fake, but I truly don't think it's fake. They gave him this sandwich, and Mike ate every single bite. Not only did he eat it, but he liked it so much that he asked for another one. Okay. There was no indication that any of the shredded tin or carpet tacks or broken glass had any effect on him. It's not like tearing apart his stomach or his throat or anything. Like, he literally ate a sandwich of metal and broken glass and tacks wow and he's fine and asked for another one dude (laughs) what else is there to do (laughs) that's that's kind of what the how the gang is feeling they're at a loss they're like we literally can't kill this guy he also told marino that the food they've been giving him was so nice that not only should he have the bar but he should open up a restaurant wow he's enjoying it so much 
After several weeks of unsuccessfully attempting to poison Malloy, Marino and the gang were becoming desperate. Marino had already invested a lot of money into trying to kill him, and he needed the insurance money. He was getting so angry at the situation that at one point the gang had to physically hold him back from shooting Malloy in the head. Because remember, it had to look like an accident for them to actually cash in, so if he shot him in the head, they can kiss that money goodbye. But one night, while thinking about what they were going to do about Malloy, Marino remembers Mabel Carlson and how he had already done this and gotten away with it. So all at once, it hits him, and he's like, oh my god, I'll just do to Mike what I did to Mabel. It was January in 1933, and the temperatures would drop to around negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit at night in New York City. It's cold. It's cold. It's definitely cold. So the next really cold night they had, they started pouring Mike Malloy wood alcohol earlier in the evening than they had been. And sure enough, Mike drank himself unconscious. The group then took Mike Malloy out of the bar, drove him to a park about half a mile away, took his shirt off, and poured ice water all over him before leaving him on a bench. They figured either hypothermia or exposure would have to kill him. So when they got back to the bar, they toasted to the death of Michael Malloy and their major payday that they were about to have. But the next morning, when Tony Marino was coming into the bar, he found Michael Malloy asleep on the floor. Whoa. The first thing Mike said to Marino was, quote, gotta have a shot, caught myself a cold. He even had a crazy story for Tony. The last thing he remembered, he was at the bar drinking, and the next thing he knew, he woke up in a bench in the park freezing before he stumbled back to the bar to get shelter there. So the gang started panicking because they are at a loss for what to do. This man will not die. Marino decided to confide in his friend, and his friend's name I have two pronunciations for, but I'm going to use the one that is more silly. So, Tony Bastoni. <laughs> it's either Tony Bastone or Tony Bastoni, but I'm I'm going to go with Bastoni because Tony Bastoni, I mean, hello. Tony Baloney, yeah. that sounds hysterical. Okay, so Marino decides to confide in his friend, Tony Bastoni, also known as Tough Tony, who told the men to just hire someone to kill Malloy, or just cut the theatrics and kill kill him themselves. But they told him no, it had to look like an accident, but Bastoni was like, I think I can still make it look like an accident. So they call up their friend who was a taxi driver named Harry Green who agreed to run over Malloy for $150. Wow. Times are fucking tough. You're going to run over a man for 150 bucks? I mean, it was more money in then than it was now, but, but yes. A couple thousand. Right, right, exactly. Before taking Malloy out to where they were going to run him over, they put the fake ID that said his name was Nicholas Mellory into his pocket. They take him out to a quiet street in the Bronx where it took them three tries to run over Malloy. But eventually, they did it. Murphy and Bastoni held Malloy by the arms, and Harry Green drove his taxi into Michael Malloy at about 20 to 30 miles per hour, which sent him flying into the gutter. Just before they were about to go get his body, a car drove by, which freaked out the men, and they all huddled into their car and headed back to the speakeasy without grabbing Malloy. The next morning... 
They were all scouring the newspaper to see if they could find any headlines about a hit and run, but they couldn't find anything. Their next move was to start calling hospitals and asking for Nicholas Mellory, but again, no luck. They called morgues in the area, but again, no sign of anyone with that name. Their search was quiet for days, but now they had a real problem because they were thinking they've successfully killed Michael Malloy, but they lost his body, which meant that there was still going to be no insurance check because without his body, they can't get the money. Which is when their plan gets even crazier, because now they were coming up with plans to find someone who looked like Michael Malloy, kill him, and then cash in that way. They go out and they start canvassing the local speakeasies, which is where they find a man at a speakeasy in Harlem named Joseph Patrick Murphy, who, according to court testimony, Marino said was a spitting image of Michael Malloy and had the same face and build. So the gang befriends Patrick Murphy, and they buy him some drinks, they get him drunk, and then they bring him back to Marino's speakeasy, where they give him even more drinks, to the point where he is totally wasted. They then put him into Harry Green's taxi, and drive him out to a quiet street in the Bronx, and do the exact same thing they did with Michael Malloy. They hit Patrick Murphy at about 30 miles per hour, but when they go to retrieve his body, again... A car drives by, which scares them away, and they head back to Marino's bar again without a body. Thankfully, Patrick Murphy did survive, but the men did not know that. So they thought they had killed two separate men and lost both of their bodies, which, as you can imagine, caused a tremendous amount of panic. The next afternoon, the gang was gathered in Marino's speakeasy once again to figure out what they were going to do. But as they were gathered, the door opens, and guess who walked in? Michael Malloy. Wow. Malloy tells the men that five days ago, he had woken up in a gutter with a bad headache and a sore shoulder. That's it? Apparently, he had no memory of what happened, and a police officer had seen him and asked what his name was. So, of course, he told the police officer his name was Michael Malloy. He was then taken to a hospital in the Bronx, where doctors had told him that he had a fractured skull, a fractured shoulder, and a concussion, but after five days, he was released. The gang couldn't find him at the hospital because they had been asking for someone named Nicholas Mellory, not Michael Malloy. So, he was at the hospital, but they didn't ask for the right name. So again, he orders his shot of regular, which was wood alcohol, and the the cycle starts over once again. The gang had already spent a collective $1,875 on trying to kill Malloy, which was about half of the $3,500 that they were hoping to get out of the insurance scam. And they were going to have to pay even more money soon because February insurance payments were coming up. But the men decided they were going to try one more time. They rented a room on Fulton Avenue that had a gas stove and put Nicholas Mellory's name on the lease. On February 23rd, 1933, Michael Malloy enjoyed his very last round before the men carried his unconscious body to the apartment. They then tied a hose to the gas stove and connected that hose to his mouth and turned it on. The carbon monoxide from the gas finally did put an end to Michael Malloy's life. 
Many sources claim there could have been as many as 9 to 20 attempts on Malloy's life by the gang in total. So here's where I say, yes, this is technically not a full survival story because he did die, but he survived like 20 attempts on his life, which is like really extreme. And it's my podcast and I make the rules. (laughs) That's right. So yeah, it is just amazing. The amount of wood alcohol he was able to take in with no problem. I mean, he he should have frozen in the park. He should have been ripped apart from the inside from that sandwich. He was drinking literal poison. Like, he survived so many attempts on his life. It's insane. So the men, now that he was finally dead, thought that they were home free. Because Francis Pasqua was an undertaker, he had connections to a doctor named Frank Manzella, who Pasqua paid $100 to come examine the body and write a death certificate claiming the cause of death was pneumonia with the contributing factor of alcoholism. He even fluffed up the report by saying that Nicholas Mellory had come to him a few days prior to his death, complaining about flu-like symptoms. Mike Malloy was killed on the 23rd, He was buried on the 24th in a $10 coffin on an unmarked plot of land, and by the 25th, the men were back in the insurance office to claim their life insurance payment, which was not the best call. They started at the Metropolitan Office, where Francis Pasqua was given a check for $800, and after that, they went to the Prudential Office. However, Prudential told Pasqua that they wanted to see the body. When he told them that they couldn't see the body because they had buried him yesterday, that immediately sent up red flags. The insurance agent told Pasqua that they were going to have to look into it, and Prudential would be opening an investigation. They sent agents out to Marino Speakeasy in the Bronx and started asking around about Nicholas Mallory, but no one knew anyone by that name. The men did cash in the Metropolitan check for $800, and Pasqua and Marino split it, getting $400 each, but they had to pay some people off, like Harry Green and the taxi driver, Tough Tony Bastoni, and some other people. So they got basically nothing. Because the problem was, there were so many people who frequented Marino's bar that they knew about this plot to kill Malloy. These people had been overhearing the men talk about it for months, and now they wanted a cut as well. Gotta pay the piper. You know? I guess. I mean, this is, at this point, really, it's just blackmail. Yeah, I know, but they're really uh, fucked. Yeah, they have to pay off so many people. I mean, they just kept asking more friends for help with this, you know, task that was highly illegal. I mean, they are in an illegal speakeasy, so everyone's there kind of like, okay, we're already doing something illegal, but like, killing someone is a Big deal. Yeah. It's like, at some point, you got to imagine that they would think God is, like, trying to tell them something. Maybe. 20 times? Yeah. But also, like, they were sitting around in the speakeasy just openly talking about their plan to kill Michael Malloy. So the people who, like, frequented the speakeasy just knew that this was what was going on. Except for Mike. Except Mike. Crazy. Everyone who heard that and then didn't say anything shitty that's not cool not great yeah one evening tony bastoni was talking with another man joe maglioni at the bar about who would be getting the biggest share of the prudential check once they got it 
but they started arguing about it, which turned into Maglione taking out a gun and shooting Bastoni dead. Oh. Yeah. When police arrived, they arrested Maglione and Joe Murphy, the bartender, who had been a part of this scheme from day one, but they arrested him as a material witness, and both of them were hauled off to jail. So now the cops were keeping a really close eye on Marino's speakeasy. A regular named John McNally decided to talk to police. He had- Wait, sorry, back up. Somebody was shot in their speakeasy? Yep. And they didn't discover the speakeasy? They discovered the speakeasy. And they didn't care? I mean, there were so many speakeasies. The, the cops knew speakeasies were around, you know? Oh, Okay. So they were just like, it's like unspoken, just not enforced. Probably. Yeah. It's like how weed is decriminalized in some places. Yeah. That's, okay. That seems like a good assessment. Yeah. I was about to say, like, <laughs> you had to have kind of looked around a little bit. They right? walked into the bar, but just like with their eyes closed. Yeah. <laughs> or they ordered a drink. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, I mean, they knew that speakeasies were around. It's not like they could shut them all down. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so they arrested the guy who killed Tony Bastoni because tensions were very high amongst the gang members and also the people involved in this who, you know, weren't a part of the core group because so many people knew about it and everyone wanted to cut. Everyone was struggling and they all had a lot to lose. They could all go to prison for this. They're all attempting to kill someone and they did end up killing him. So they want their fair share. But finally, a regular named John McNally decided to talk to police. He had known the entire story about the attempts on Mike Malloy's life because the gang had approached him for help at one point. He told investigators that Malloy's body was buried at Fern Cliff Cemetery. So 10 months after all this began, police got a court order and dug up Michael Malloy's body. Immediately upon seeing Malloy's body, they knew that he had not died of alcoholism or pneumonia, but of carbon monoxide poisoning. When a person is killed from carbon monoxide poisoning, their body will have this really red discoloration all over. Carbon monoxide in the blood is so stable that even if the body was fully decomposed, they would have been able to determine the actual cause of death. They could have gotten rid of this proof if Malloy had been embalmed, but Pasqua was being so cheap about burying Malloy's body that he skipped that step. That's insane that what gets him is that he's so cheap. Yeah, so they open up this grave and they're like, immediately, this man died of carbon monoxide poisoning, which does not match up with the... The story. The story, it exactly. It match. Right. So I just don't understand why they didn't just go with oh he got carbon monoxide poisoning because he left the stove on or some dumb shit like that That why didn't they just go with something that was closer to the truth still would have been accidental yeah that would have been smarter so these people are not only murderers but cheap and lazy and dumb and dumb correct so police were definitely suspicious of the gang but they didn't even really have to do anything to get them The gang had been arguing over who was going to get what from the life insurance money, and Harry Green was extremely pissed at the small amount the gang was going to give him, so he went to the cops and told them everything. And of course, the entire gang, Tony Marino, Francis Pasqua, Joe Murphy, Daniel Kreisberg, and Harry Green were all charged with first-degree murder. Reporters had began referring to the gang as the Murder Trust. 
Their trial began on October 1933 at the Bronx County Courthouse and lasted a little over two weeks. Prosecutors had mountains of evidence against these men and had a bunch of witnesses to bring against them, including Harry Green and Patrick Murray, who the gang attempted to run over in place of Malloy. They even brought up the death of Mabel Carlson because it was so similar to the near-death situation Malloy had found himself in recently. The men tried to plead insanity, but when that didn't work, they tried to blame the now-dead Tony Bastoni for coercing them into doing it. And when that didn't work, they tried to blame each other. When all was said and done, Tony Marino, Francis Pasqua, Joe Murphy, and Daniel Kreisberg were all sentenced to death by electric chair, and Harry Green was sentenced to life for the part that he played. And Dr. Manzella was also given a pretty light sentence for failing to report the suspicious death. Wait, that was the doctor that fudged the papers? Yes. But he still went to jail. He still did, but he got a lighter sentence because, you know, he wasn't like, he didn't kill him, he just fudged the papers. Yeah. One reporter described the situation as one that seemed more like an impossible play than a real-life murder trial. So even at the time, they're like, this is insanity. None of this makes any sense. But it happened. Yeah. The, survi- the survival of Mike Malloy is really a mystery. How he managed to not die with all of the attempts on his life that definitely would have killed most other people is a mystery. People have speculated that he didn't die from drinking the wood alcohol at first because he had been drinking actual liquor before that, which kind of counteracted the poison in some way. But there's no reason he should have lived after eating a sandwich full of shredded tin, broken glass, carpet tacks, and rat poison. So there's that. Or being left passed out on a bench with no shirt in the winter drenched in ice water, or getting hit by a car three times at 30 miles an hour. And those were just the highlights. There were other attempts. Oh my god. Yeah. Although he was killed on the 20th anniversary of this tale, a newspaper wrote... Quote, although he was finally murdered, his last three months were probably his happiest. See, that's where I was going to end up. I was going to say there's really not much happy angle to this, but at least he did seem like he was having a great time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It sounds like from his experience, it was just alcoholism degenerating until he was going to pass away, but... At least he had three months where he thought like he had really good friends and he got everything he wanted pretty much. He got fed. He got unlimited alcohol, which he obviously loved. He kind of got housed a little bit. Like if he needed to crash on the floor, he did. Like, (laughs) I mean, he did. Like he did that. So, yeah, it's really dark. But yeah, he did get something out of it, I guess. Yeah. Aside from him, it's just the ugliest human behavior that you can Put on display. Definitely. Eventually, Marino's speakeasy and the apartment where Malloy was killed were torn down, so people have said that Malloy's ghost didn't even get anywhere to go back and haunt. But it's such an unbelievable story, and over the years, he kind of became a symbol of the Depression era resilience and is a legend in the true crime world. He has nicknames like the Durable Mike Malloy, Iron Mike, the Rasputin of the Bronx, I think, something like that. Like, he's just got so many nicknames, and he is, like, truly a legend. Another insane fact about Michael Malloy is that nobody actually knows who he was. 
because he had no friends or relatives and even the Irish government's own records couldn't determine his real identity. So there are some theories about this, like maybe he killed someone in Ireland and then fled to the US and just started introducing himself as Mike Malloy, but nobody really knows who he actually was. That's wild. So he could be anybody. He could be anyone. He could have been a terrible person. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, you're probably not like the greatest person. Yeah, I mean, he he couldn't hold down a job and he was homeless. And I mean, that kind of was a product of the actual depression and, you know, whatever. But yeah, I mean, he wasn't doing great in life. That's for sure. But also it's like, who actually was this man? We don't know. So truly, it's all just one big mystery. And that is the story of the durable Mike Malloy. Yeah, I mean, I just dumbfounded after dumbfounded every time that they try and kill him. And it's just, he's still there. I I can't imagine how the gang must have felt every single time he just showed back up at the bar. Or how they must have felt after like the first attempt. Because at first they were like, oh, he'll just drink himself to death. Like, we'll just give him unlimited booze. And then after a week of, like, literally drinking the entire bar, like, all of the liquor in the bar, he was walking back in day after day, like, hey, guys, thanks. Like, (laughs) what's for lunch? Like, totally fine. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I, I think that this story is so unbelievably interesting and kind of ridiculous to, like, talk about and think about and imagine. Um, obviously very dark. But uh, I don't know. I felt like we would probably have a better time talking about this one than we, than we did the past two weeks talking about yeah. other kinds of this things. This is a light story. Right. This is lighter than others. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah, I just imagine. It seemed like they got angry every time that he wasn't dead, which I guess, you know. Of course. Is understandable. But, like, I also have to feel that they would think this is kind of just impressive. Yeah. Did they not feel that way? I mean, I'm sure they weren't looking at it like that um, at the time because they just were so set on killing him. But looking back on it, we can say, yeah, that's incredibly impressive. Yeah. But anyway, what is your good thing? Why don't you go first? Okay. I am going to some kind of themed party this afternoon. I don't know what to expect, but um, the theme is Yacht Rock. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to wear yet. Probably something pastel and just look like a a boat douche. A boat douche. You know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you're thinking of wearing uh, the Bud Light bucket hat. Potentially. That might be too uh, frat boy for me. I'm not sure. Maybe. Sometimes, on you? On you, not so much. On me, maybe. Yes. But, I, Maybe I'll cosplay as a douchebag. That's kind of the idea. That's the point. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's my good thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting silly. Um, what is your good thing? My good thing is that, uh, after I got my stitches, I am at a point where I can go kind of walk around and go to the driving range. I can't like walk and golf, but I can golf kind of, <laughs> kind of. So we're back to that. Did we ever mention that you had, he had stitches in his leg. He had to oh, get something so. taken off his leg, but he, he couldn't really walk around too much because he would bleed. So that's correct. But you, we're back. We're, we're back, back, baby. We're back to walking. Kinda. Yeah. I get that. him out next week. So love that love that perfect anyways thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast 
If you would like to listen to the bonus content that we put up on Patreon, check us out at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. We actually just dropped an AMA where we answered some of your questions about us kind of randomly. So that was fun. Check it out. Check it out. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to send to us, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.